Now, about five years ago, uh, I started watching the science fiction TV series uh, called Battlestar Galactica. I don't know if you have ever watched that. I assume most of you have uh, never seen it. Uh, the story is set in a star system far away. Uh, it's a star system where an android race called the Cylons uh, are perpetually battling. Yeah, <laughs> Sister Verity is looking shocked. Uh, <laughs> they are perpetually uh, battling ordinary human beings and they are fighting for dominance. And as the story progresses, it takes a life of its own. Uh, I could not resist being fascinated by the various characters, twists and turns of the plot. I had my favorite character in the story. And um, I became part of this larger story. You see, this was about 2014. I became part of this story without in reality really being part of it. Uh, but I was drawn into it. And yes, uh, I did within one month finished all the four series. That's how much I was into it. Why are we drawn to such stories? I'm sure you've got your favorite box sets that you have also just consumed to that extent via Netflix. Why are we drawn to such stories? Well, I think it's because there is woven inside each one of us a desire for something more, a craving to be part of something bigger and greater. Now, all of us want to be part of something more profound than our relatively meaningless day-to-day -day existence. I loved leaving work, coming home, and entering this new realm. Uh, and I enjoyed doing that. And um, I think that's why we love that. You know, we want to make life more interesting. We want to be part of something, a grand story. And I think that's why many of us are hooked to box te television series. This is why many of us are hooked to movies and things like that. It is also why people climb Everest. Uh, this is why people travel across oceans in a small sailboat to break some world record that people really don't care about. Uh, it is why we are hooked to politics and sports. It is why people join to support many causes that gives them something greater, something bigger to fight for. You see, we are not constructed to live only for ourselves. God didn't make us like that. We were created and placed on this planet, all of us, to be part of something far bigger than ourselves. The Bible actually says that that something is actually a someone. Someone far bigger, far greater than us. We were created by God to find our lasting fulfillment and purpose in the God who made us. But at the beginning of creation, you see, when God made us, we rebelled against God. We chose to live our own way, to do things our own way. We, we rejected the God who gave us meaning and purpose in life. And we became disconnected to this someone who's far grander, far greater than us. We became disconnected from the God who made us. And this has left a deep, God-shaped hole in every human being. And the absence of God in our lives has created five big problems. Or, as you sit here this morning, all human beings have five big problems in their lives. First of all, it has left you feeling lonely and isolated. Yes, you have friends around you, but when you carefully think for yourself, regardless of how old you are, you have a deep desire to be truly loved and satisfied. But if you're honest, you never experience that. You experience shades of love, 
But you have never experienced true love and fulfillment in life. That's the first problem you have. The second problem is created is that you want to know what your ultimate purpose in life. Why do you exist? Why are you here? Why, where is your life going? You want to know answers to that. And be honest, you don't know. <laughs> You're asking that question. The third problem is created is that you are searching to discover yourself. Who are you really at the core of your being? What is your original identity? You don't know. The world doesn't know. And that's why the world, particularly in the Western world, is confused about identities. The fourth problem is created is that you feel a deep degree of loss and brokenness in life. You are looking at the world around you, and you feel and you know that the world isn't always singing for you. It is at war with you. You are afraid of the viruses around you. You are afraid of what the future holds. You know the world is broken. That's problem number four. And the fifth problem is that you are concerned that one day you will die. There's no single person here who doesn't think about death. It's crossed your mind, even the young. You wish that there was a way, some way for you to beat death. But you know deep inside your heart you cannot do it. So you've got these five problems. These problems, as I said, they are common to all of us here. Young and old. You have them, I have them, everybody does. We have these challenges, you see, this problem, because we have been disconnected from the God who created us. He's created that void. That void, we've created that void by rebelling against him. His absence means that we've got these five problems. This means that no matter how much money you make, how much love you receive, what power you have, you can never be satisfied in life. And I think what all of us just need to do is to admit that. Let's just admit that. We can never be satisfied in life. What you and I need is a life that's a bit different. Massively different, I would say, not just a bit different. What you and I need in life is to live with God. He's the only one who can truly satisfy. You need to share life with God because that hole cannot be plugged by any other things. Only God can fill the void he has left behind when we rebelled against him. You know, Augustine of Hippo, um, the African church father, recognized this truth. He said, to God, he said to God in prayer, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts will always be restless. That was in the fourth century. He recognized that. Our hearts will always be restless until they find rest in God. And this brings us to the huge question I want us to think about this morning. How can you and I share life with God? How can we have a life that brings lasting fulfillment? What do we need to do to be good enough for God? What are the qualifications we must have to qualify to have life with God? That's the question we're asking. Are you good enough to be with God? You need God, but are you good enough to be with God? You see, in every relationship in life, we have to be good enough to be accepted by other people. You must be good enough to marry someone's daughter. You have to be. The father will have a chat with you. <laughs> you must be good enough to get the job that you long for. You must meet certain qualifications. You must be good enough to remain in marriage. The wife has standards that you must 
keep meeting, and the husband does, I'm sure. Everywhere they are disqualified. By the way, you must be good enough to remain British. Because if you don't, you're not good enough, frankly, people have lost their citizenship. Just ask Shamima Begum. You must be good enough to keep walking around, going to the same shop as we do. Because if you decide to kill someone, with a society will judge you that you're not good enough and they'll send you to prison forever, for murder, for life. So you, there are standards to meet in life, and the same is true with God. God has his own standards. There are qualifications you must meet. You can't just go your way up to God and think that God will accept you. No. There are standards that God expects for you to meet. You must be good enough for God. And King David knew this in Psalm 15 verse 1. He asked God the question for us. Let's look at verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? David is asking, who can come for dinner with you? Right? Who can live at your house? That's the question he's asking in verse 1. Who can be your friend? Who can live with you? And, I, I, and this is a question all of us have to ask. If you want a relationship with God, you must ask that. If you are thinking about the future, what will happen when you die, you must ask that question. If you want to live with God, then you need to pay attention to the answer that David gives in this psalm. And there are just two answers that David gives us. First of all, the bad news. We must be pure to live with God. We must be perfect. That's the qualification. You must be perfect to live with God. The Bible says God is pure without any fault or sin in him. So in order for you to live with God, you must also be pure and perfect. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. Oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, who shall dwell on your holy hill. Verse 2 to 5 are the qualifications. But let's just look at verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Verse 3, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. You see, just as day and night cannot happen at the same time, God cannot live with any person who thinks or says or does evil things at all. Even once, it rules you out forever. Now, we must ask this question, why does God not allow anyone with sin to be part of his life? Is God worried that sin is like the coronavirus, right? It may contaminate him. He may catch the flu of disease of sin. No, no, no. Uh, quite the opposite. God cannot allow sin to live with him because sin provokes within God something deep inside to severely punish sin and burn it forever. That's why God can't allow sin to come to him. There's something within God that provokes his hunger, his wrath, his judgments against sin. So if a person with sin comes closer to God, God would destroy that person. You see, God is like the sun. There is no shadow of darkness in him. Anything that comes to him that has any darkness, it must burn up immediately. So this is why only a perfect person can live with God. And in this psalm, we have a description of a perfect person who can live with God. We see that in verse 2. We won't go through all these verses 2 to 5. But notice in verse 2, for example, just to give you a flavor. 
To live with God, first of all, you must, God must be happy with everything you are doing in your life. Everything. Look at verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Just focus on those words there that this person must do what is right, does what is right. What does that mean? Well, to do what is right in the Old Testament means you have to keep all the 613 commands that God gave Moses in the law of Moses. That's what God gave the people of Israel. That's what it means. In the, New, in the Old Testament, righteousness means doing right. And doing right means keeping the old law. And if you break only one part of the law, you break the whole thing. Bear that in mind. So, for example, within these 613 commandments, they have been summarized also as the Ten Commandments. We read about them in Exodus 20. Right? So, in Exodus 20, among the Ten Commandments, we read this commandment. It says, you must always obey your parents and honor them. It says that. Commandment number five. So if you have ever disobeyed your parents, even once, you cannot live with God. Have you obeyed all your parents' commands? Well, that rules you out. It rules me out. Right? That's commandment number five. Commandment number nine says, you must always tell the truth to people. If you have ever lied, do not bear false witness. If you have ever lied once, even to your mom or to your teachers, to your boss at work, you cannot live with God. Commandment nine rules you out. And remember what I said. If you ever break one of the 613 commands, you break the whole thing. They come as a set. That's what James reminds us. You have broken the whole thing, past, present, future. The whole thing is gone. Here is another requirement. Look at verse 3. So you must do, keep the whole law. Verse 3. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend. I just want to focus on that word there, the middle one. It says the phrase, and does no evil to his neighbor. To live with God... You must, do, you must never do any evil to your neighbor. You must never treat others less than God treats them. That's what it means. So if you said or did something bad to someone and never apologized, that is evil. If you talk behind someone's back, that is doing evil to them. When you park somewhere where you are meant to pay, but you just have this for 10 minutes, let me just park here. They're not aware, but... You are not paying. You are doing evil to them. You are just getting away with it, but you have done evil. You have sinned. You are taking what does not belong to you. You are doing evil to the council. You are doing evil to taxpayers. So you can see now, uh, just focusing on that, if you have ever done evil to any person, you are not pure enough to live with God. I don't know about you, but how are you doing so far? I'm just giving you a sample. I mean, you can go through the rest of the 613. You can go through all of these ones. The truth is that as you think about these things, you realize that there is no one here, no one in this world, who can answer yes to each all of these things. No one is pure enough to live with God. That's our position. And you know what? God will not change his mind about his rules. You either qualify, as he has said in Psalm 15, or you don't qualify. 
And if you don't qualify, you remain separated from God forever. And you must take that seriously. Look, there are parts of your life that you cannot change to get on with people around you. Right? I hope there are things, you have convictions, you have respect for yourself, I'm sure you do. There are things that you will simply not compromise to get along with another person. Otherwise, you can never be yourself. If I said to you, look, you must change the color of your skin to become my friend. If I said that to you, you'd be very offended, wouldn't you? You'd even sue me, etc., etc., for defamation. You'd make a YouTube video about me and you want the whole country to shame me, to cancel me everywhere, starting here, right? You'd be offended. It is the same with God. What your color of your skin is to God, what your color of your skin is to you, it is what these attributes of God had to him. God is pure. He wouldn't be God if he wasn't pure. He's holy. He's righteous. These things are basic to his nature. It is he who he is as a person. He can't change it and remain God. He can't set aside his demands for you. So either you meet the demands of Psalm 15 or you cannot have life with God. It's that simple. And the problem is that we cannot meet these demands. So all of us here in this room, we have got a real big problem on our hands, right? We have this God-shaped hole. We, we cannot be fulfilled. We have these five problems I talked about. And we need God to help us with them. But we cannot have God on our terms. The Bible says there's nothing you can do to fill this God-shaped hole. You can't get God to live with you. And to make matters worse, God says, if you don't live with him, you will perish in hell forever. So the question is, what are you going to do about it? And the answer is, there's nothing you can do, right? But thankfully, God has done something about it. What has God done for sinners? Well, what God has done is this. You cannot go up to God and live in his tent. But God has come down to pitch his tent among us. God the Son has come in the person of Jesus to be our tent, to be our host, and to be the perfect guest. And what you and I need is to live with, to live with God is to rely on Jesus Christ, not on our goodness, uh, but on Jesus to save us from our sin. And that's the second and final truth. We must rely on Jesus to live with God, right? What's the, what, how do we live with God? Well, we must be pure to live with God. But we cannot do it. How do we do it? We must rely on Jesus to live with God. Look at verse 1 again. What's the most important word in verse 1? The most important word in verse 1 is the word tent. Tent. If you know your Bible very well, you immediately spot the most important word there is the word tent. Who shall sojourn in your tent? And if you know your Bible very well, you know that at this time David is writing this psalm. There is no temple, but there is a tent. There is a tabernacle where the law of God is kept, where people can approach God to commune with him, the tabernacle. Later Solomon is going to build a temple, but there is a tent. In the tent is where the people of Israel approach to worship God. 
And this tent really is very important. It is a shadow or a copy of heaven, right? Where God dwells. To come into this tent of God is really to, is symbolic for entering the presence of God in heaven itself. But here's the problem, right? We have just read here that no one can enter really God's tent. No one can fulfill. No one deserves to be there, right? None of us can truly live with God because God is holy, and we are not. But the amazing thing is that we read this in John 1, verse 14. The passage we just read, if you flick to John 1, verse 14, which we read in the New Testament, the fourth book in the New Testament, the passage that you know very well, it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You've read this so many times, but what you may not know is this. In the original language of that verse, the phrase, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally reads, the word, who's God himself, pitched his tent among us. The word tabernacled among us. If you like, the tent of God we read about in Psalm 15 verse 1, has now come to us as a person in Jesus. So you and I are now invited to come and live with God through Jesus. How does Jesus enable us to live with God? Remarkably, Jesus does this by being both God and man. As God in human flesh, Jesus is the tent that brings together man and God, that houses man in his body, that houses God and man in his body. And as God, Jesus is the perfect host to welcome you to his tent. And as man, Jesus is the perfect guest, is the only one who meets the qualifications of verse 2 to verse 5. So in Jesus we have the tent, we have the host, and we have the perfect guest. And the perfect guest is important, you see, because as the perfect human being, Jesus is the only perfect guest, of course, isn't it? And he qualifies to do that because Jesus is perfect, he's without any sin. We read that in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. It says this, You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him, that is Jesus, there is no sin. 1 Peter 2, verse 22 to 23 says this, He committed no sin, that is Jesus, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. In other words, he ticked off everything in Psalm 15. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to, to him who judges justly. Jesus was free from sin. And this is a point we miss all the time, but you need to understand this so cardinal. Jesus was not just free from sin. Jesus or free from thinking sin or doing sin, Jesus' entire being is free from an inbuilt desire or inclination to sin. If you like, we talk of computers, isn't it? We, we have that advert which says Intel inside, right? If you're looking at Jesus, Jesus is perfect inside. No inclination. He's perfect through and through. 
So how does Jesus' perfect life help us? Well, you and I are sinners, as I said. We cannot live with God. We are under the penalty of eternal death. Romans 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we deserve death, but the Bible says that Jesus took his perfect record of life to the cross where he died in order to exchange it with your sinful record. Do you follow that? You have this sinful record. Jesus has a perfect record. Somehow Jesus needs to swap his perfect record with you. How is Jesus going to do that? Well, Jesus has to go to the cross, has to die for our sins. And by him dying for our sins, he gives you this perfect record if you trust in Jesus. If you trust in the death of Jesus for your sin, God can look upon your life as if you are without sin. You can now be allowed to live with God forever. And the good news of Jesus is that God is inviting each one of us today to enter his tent and live with him by repenting, truly repenting and trusting in the death of Jesus for your sin. That's the invitation this passage is giving you, right? But you must accept that invitation. You must accept it by repenting from your sin and surrendering your life to Jesus. It is the only way you can live with God is by true repentance. What does it mean to repent? Do you know what does it mean to repent? Well, repentance is not simply accepting that I am a sinner. I mean, we can all hold our hands up. Boris Johnson can do that. The devil can do that, right? I'm not putting George, Boris Johnson to the devil to imply anything. But, you know, anyone can do that, right? The devil can do that. The devil knows he's a sinner and he's proud of it. Repentance is knowing you're a sinner. Repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change in how you live. It is turning, it's like this. Repentance is like this. You are walking in one direction, but you've now turned and are now walking in the other direction. You have repented of going this way, you're now going this way. If you're on a train heading to London, repentance is you getting off at the next stop and taking the train to go in the opposite direction. To repent means you go before Jesus. You place yourself at his mercy. You ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin and to ask him to give you a new direction in life. And from that point on, God gives you a new life that enables you to think differently, behave differently, believe differently, love differently. He gives you these new affections. Yes, of course, you're going to sin along the way. We are all sinners. But you are growing in loving Jesus and living for him. And I just want to emphasize that it is not repenting for sins you do every week. You know, like, you can't, we're all sinning every week. Repentance is not saying, I sinned this week, so I ask God to forgive me. And then next week I sin. To, that's not repentance. Repentance, repentance we're talking about here, that is, of course, important to do that, right? To ask God to forgive us. But what I'm talking about here is an initial change. It is you repenting for your past sins your present sins, and your future sins. Coming to him to ask him to forgive you because Jesus has died on the cross for your sin. Asking him to make you his child, to give you a new heart. Have you done this? 
as you sit here this morning? Have you truly surrendered your life to Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Regardless of how old you are, young or old, have you come before God and say, Lord, God, I recognize I do not have a perfect life. I recognize I can't go to heaven. And I ask you, Lord, to forgive me all my sins, past, present, future. Give me a new life. Qualify me to enter heaven because of what Jesus has done. Have you done that? If you have not done that, then you do not qualify to enter heaven. You are not heaven bound. And even if you think you have done that, but there has been no change that's taken place in your life, there's been no moving towards God, then you must ask yourself, have I really done that? But if you have done that and there are senses in which you're still struggling in some areas, but you know you've done that and you're beginning to grow, then be comforted you've done that. God has saved you. Yes, change looks slow, but God is changing you. He's moving you from one degree of glory to next. But you must have done that. And really coming to do all of these things we're doing, church and lunch, none of it matters in the grand scheme of things. If this central issue of your life has not been sorted, your school doesn't matter. Your career doesn't matter. The job doesn't matter. Marriage doesn't matter. Nothing matters if this issue is not sorted out. You must sort out this issue. You must come to God now. God wants to hold you in his loving hands. He's waiting for you. He was waiting just in that tent to welcome you into his life. To be your friend. To be your protector. And no matter how ugly or dirty your sins are, God loves you as a person and he wants to wash you clean. He's saying, look, don't live on your own. I'm here. I want you to live with me. And if you repent, you can live with God forever. So come before Jesus. Surrender to him. Let the blood of Christ speak for you. Let it wash away your sin. Let it make you fit for heaven. Do not approach God on your own goodness. Do not delay this issue. Settle it now. Tell God, I am depending on you, Jesus, to save me. Please, Jesus, save me from my sin. Please, give me a new heart. I want to live with you forever. And if you do that, God will save you. He wants you to enter his tent, to live with him forever. To be your host forever. So do that. If you have already done that, if you're already relying on Jesus, here's what this means for you. And here's why you had to hear that again. Because you may find that, like, it's irrelevant, but it's a big deal for you. You may say, well, I've already done that. Why, why am I being reminded? Today has been the worst, right? Now, here's why you needed to hear that. You needed to hear that you must be pure and you don't qualify. You needed to hear that it's only Jesus who qualifies you. You need to be reminded of that. And you need to be reminded that you must only rely on Jesus every day. And you need to be reminded that you are already in God's tent. You need to be reminded that. Because sometimes we forget that. You know, we are living with people in our lives who are always not happy to live with us, right? Most people we live with are not pleased to live with us, right? You, to live with you. You know, we look at families, husbands can't cope can't wait to escape to the pub to withdraw from their wives or 
their families sometimes. Some children cannot wait to leave their parents and just be on their own. You know, children are like, ah, I just want to grow up and be on my own, right? We're not always pleased to live with people we live with, right? Because they are not always pleased to live with us. But in Jesus, you have a God who is your permanent host, permanent friend. He's a God who has died to be with you. He is really pleased to live with you. God was pleased to dwell in Jesus so that you can enjoy his pleasing, so to speak, for you to be with him. You see, Jesus did not go to the cross kicking and screaming. He went there filled with that inner joy that he was going there to die for you. He had you in his heart, and despite the brutality of the cross, despite the wrath of God he was going to suffer, he thought of you and he gave him greater joy and strength to go to the cross. So, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, put away this idea that Jesus loves you like some relative who only loves you in theory, but frankly can't stand you, right? We have relatives like that, don't we? Who just love us in theory, but they can't really stand us. They're just putting up with us. Jesus is not like that. You must put away any idea that Jesus is some distant parent uh, who shows you grace in letting you live in his house, but he doesn't really spend much time with you. No, Jesus is not like that. Many of us have these distorted pictures of God. We have these distorted pictures of God, but we think God somehow welcomes us, but he's not very fond of us. He doesn't, God loves me, but he doesn't like me. That's what some people say, right? No, beloved, those are false ideas. I mean, rest in this wonderful news that we have here that as a child of God, Jesus is bananas over you. He loves you to bits. And please remember who Jesus is, please. Please remember who he is. Jesus is the everlasting, unchanging, self-existent, self-sufficient God. He is the powerful and sovereign God. Jesus is always pure to you. He is always true to you. He is always good to you. He's always loving you. He's always just to you. He's always gracious to you. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He makes his full resources available to you. Oh, beloved, be pleased that you have such a savior in your life. Be joyful that God the creator is your loving, eternal friend. Take delight in it. Have you recently stumbled in some sin? Are you looking at your life wondering, I'm all alone, what does God think of me? I'm so anxious about the future. Where is my life going? Oh, beloved, if you are trusting in Jesus, God delights in you, not because of your performance, but because of the blood of Jesus has been shed for your sin. He is a tent. He is a perfect host. He is the perfect guest. And you qualify. You live with him. No, no, Jesus is not trying to kick you out of a relationship. You know, like Noah, we said, God has shut you in into his heart, doesn't he? You are served in his gorgeous tent, in Jesus, forever. So let this truth say to your heart, let it move you to delight in God. What a God we serve. What a Savior you have if you are in Jesus. Let it move you to confess his goodness and to repent of any sin in your life. This is not an excuse for sin. This is, an, this, this is a call for us to, if we are tolerating any sin as believers, to confess it. Because how can we offend such a wonderful, 
Satan. And let it reassure you that no matter what life is throwing at you, God is now your best friend. You are not walking alone if you are in Christ. And if you are not in Christ, this is the invitation that God gives you. He wants to be this to you. He wants to be your friend. He wants you to be with him forever. He wants to solve those five problems we talked about. Those five problems we mentioned, which all of us have. You feel alone, lonely and isolated. Jesus is saying, I'm there. He wants to give you that. He wants you to know that he's always there. You want to know what your purpose in life. Jesus is the ultimate purpose in life. You want to discover yourself. You want to choose one of those perhaps 100 identities that the BBC seems to publish everywhere. Or whatever identity you come up with, you don't need any of that. If you are in Jesus, your identity is that you are in Christ. Period. You're worrying about loss and, and, and brokenness in life. If you are in Christ, you do not need to worry. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Behold, I am with you to the ends of the earth. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You don't need to worry about what you lack in life because you can look to Psalm 23 and see the Savior himself speaking to you. You can say, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil for you are with me. You can be confident if you're in Christ that Jesus is saying, he prepares the table before me in the presence of my enemy. My cup overflows. If you are in Christ, you're worrying about what lies beyond the, the grave where you can be confident. You can be confident in Christ. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.